Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. This week, Doug talks about Christmas. And I wanted to make sure you knew that Doug has a book on Christmas called God Rest Ye Merry, Why Christmas is the Foundation for Everything. The repetition of Christmas traditions can appear to dull the powerful nature of the holiday. God Rest Ye Merry is meant to rekindle the Christian's understanding of Advent on every front, from politics to shopping to uproarious celebration. You can find Douglas Wilson's God Rest You Mary at canonpress.com or better, you can find it read by Toby Sumter on the Canon app. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 171, 171. So I want to uh, talk a little bit. We're coming up on Christmas now, right? We're in the Advent season. And uh, so I want to talk a little bit about something that comes up pretty regularly in conservative Christian circles, and that is the problem of the origins of Christmas. There are some Christians who reject celebrations of Christmas because of its pagan origins, and there are others that reject it because of its popish origins. So, some are very decided Christians, and they don't want to have anything to do with paganism, and others are very decided Protestants, and they don't want to have anything to do with Christ mass. So, how do you answer the person who says, well, that Christmas tree and that mistletoe and that, you know, that Yule log, all of those things used to be pagan customs? How do you reply to that? Well, I, my reply is pretty straightforward. I think it's perfectly all right to celebrate a holiday that used to be a pagan holiday because we used to be pagans. There you go. It doesn't bother me at all to meet somebody, make an appointment with somebody on Monday, even though that's Moon's Day, or Wednesday is Woden's Day, uh, or Thursday is Thor's Day, Friday is Freya's Day. All our days of the week, are named after Norse gods and goddesses. And that's all right, because our ancestors used to worship those gods, and now the names of those gods are fossilized like ants in amber. They, they don't mean anything anymore. Nobody, um, not one person in 100,000 who meets a friend on Thursday thinks, oh, it's Thor's day, I better, you know, I better pay attention to Thor. That's the first thing, is even if all these customs used to be pagan customs, like the wedding ring, the wedding ring, um, well, the, the Romans used to put the ring on that finger of the right hand, uh, and that's because they believed that there was a vein that ran from that finger to the heart, and you, you bound uh, your heart by binding that vein with a ring. So uh, we don't believe that anymore. We don't think that anymore. We we but we still put the we still put the ring on. These are all dead customs. Where why on earth do we on somebody's birthday do we bring out a cake, light the appropriate number of candles on top of the cake, and sing a little song and bring the cake up to the uh, the person being uh, celebrated? And when we're done singing, they blow the candles out. What are, what are we doing? And why do we say make a wish and blow the candles out? 
Well, it used to be that there was a soothsayer or a wizard or somebody with a wizard's hat standing over in the corner. And after you blew the candles out, he would come over and look at the pattern of smoke and he would tell your fortune from the smoke. He would read the smoke and tell you what kind of year you're going to have, tell you what's coming up. Now, of course, that is pagan tomfoolery. No Christian can have anything to do with that sort of thing if you're doing that sort of thing. Uh, we're not doing that at all. We're, <laughs> we're just going through the motions of something that meant something to our great, 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 great grandparents and means nothing at all to us now. It's the same sort of thing with Christmas. So that's the first thing. The, if, assuming that the tree or whatever is um, a pagan custom, uh, I don't see any problem with us celebrating it because we used to be pagans. Uh, this holiday used to be pagan, and that's fine because we used to be pagans too. But there's more to it, uh, and that is we too often readily grant the point to the objector. Uh, the objector says, well, this used to be pagan, and we say, oh, okay. And we say, um, someone says that um, Christmas is celebrated on uh, December 25th because of Saturnalia. Well, Saturnalia was not on December 25th. And so, you know, it's not a copycat version of Saturnalia. And one of the Roman, early Roman emperors in the Christian era instituted a festival called Sol Invictus. It was the festival of the unconquerable sun. And the chances are, I think, at least 50-50 that the Romans were doing this in order to copy the Christians, not the Christians to copy the pagans. In other words, in the first three centuries of the Christian church, it was the Christians who had all the mojo. The Christians were the ones who were uh, in the process of taking over the empire. And it was the, the pagan Romans who were on their back heels trying to do something that would appeal to the people the same way that Christianity was appealing to the people. So, I think that um, you, can, you can point to the Christian origin of some of our customs, like uh, Martin Luther was the one who invented Christmas tree lights. And the meaning of that is that uh, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Um, so that's an explicitly Christian origin story. But whether it's Christian in its origin or not, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what the custom means now, what the tradition means now, what you're intending by it now. We are in... The Plodcast, episode 171. In our previous installment of Homartiology, we looked at the verb blasphemeo. This time we're looking at the noun, which not surprisingly has the same general range of meaning. The word blasphemia is rendered as simple blasphemy most of the time. Uh, in Matthew 12, 31, it says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy, there it is, shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy, again, against the Holy Ghost, shall not be forgiven unto men. So, blasphemy against the Son is forgivable. Blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is not. It's not going to be forgiven. Now, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole of what that is. I'll just say briefly that I think that it's not a sin that can be committed at a certain point in time. Oh, I did that. I can't be forgiven. I think it is um, the point of no return where someone does the teeter-totter and, and goes over into the place of an irrevocable choice. Uh, and the reason there's no forgiveness available is there's no repentance, no repentance possible. 
and then in Revelation 17.3, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, blasphemia, there it is, having seven heads and ten horns. So the beast has seven heads, and the seven heads are seven kings, and the, they're the seven hills of Rome, and, and the seven kings of Rome, and so on. But her names, the names of blasphemy, are associated with this beast on which the woman is riding. The other 13 times it's translated as blasphemy are Matthew 15, 19, Matthew 26, 65, Mark 2, 7, 3, 28, 7, 22, 14, 64, Luke 5, 21, Luke 10, 33, Colossians 3, 8, Revelation 2, 9, and then Revelation 13, verses 1, 5, and 6. The word blasphemia is translated as railing, in 1 Timothy 6.4 and in Jude 1.9. In 1 Timothy 6, it says, He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, there it is, evil surmisings. So, envy, strife, railings, blasphemy, blasphemy of this sort, evil surmisings, those are sins that are associated with this kind of accusative, attacking, railing, abusive spirit. And then in Jude 9, yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation. There it is. Uh, Michael dared not bring against the devil a railing accusation that said, the Lord rebuke thee. In other words, Michael resisted the temptation to blaspheme the devil. Now, some people might wonder, well, wait, wait. How is it possible to blaspheme the devil? Well, the, the devil has a great authority, dignity. He fell from a very high place, and we ought not to be impudent when we talk of him. I remember very clearly um, when I was a little boy coming home from Sunday school, we had been taught a, a song. You probably know the song, I've Got the Joy, Joy, Joy Down in My Heart. Well, we, uh, we had learned that song. And we also learned a verse at Sunday school, if the, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Ow, sit on attack. Ow, sit on attack. And so you can imagine with a, bun, a, a Sunday school class full of little kids, uh, something like that would have gone over big, you know, <laughs> all the kids sitting on the chair. And when they got to that part, jumping up, yelling, ow, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. And I remember coming home from Sunday school full of song. and. Um, uh, my dad laying down the law that we were not to sing that song at all, and he, not not at all. Well, why? Because, well, the archangel Michael didn't bring a railing accusation against the devil, but rather said, the Lord rebuke you. And the last rendering is evil speaking, the way it's translated in Ephesians 4.31. But all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, there it is, blasphemia, be put away from you with all malice. So, blasphemy is, in Scripture, blasphemy is more than simply uh, saying something out of line with regard to God. You can blaspheme the devil. You can blaspheme principalities and powers. You can blaspheme your next-door neighbor. You can blaspheme a fellow human being because the word in involves railing accusation. So, one of the collections of books that I have is the Politically Incorrect Guide to. I've got a number of those volumes, the, the PIG, or the PIG, 
to the Constitution is the book I'm uh, reviewing this time. It's by a gent named Gutzman, G-U-T-Z-M-A-N. So, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution. Basically, this book is a history of constitutional law. And one of the things that uh, this book will help do is um, it, it will clear up any notion that you might have had that the United States was a pristine and godly republic down to the year the Beatles came to America, and then everything fell apart. No, particularly if you study the history of the Constitution, you will see that they, there were people subverting the original intent of the Constitution, of the founders, from the very beginning. And probably the, in terms of constitutional law, the rot goes back to Marbury versus Madison. Basically, it, at the Constitutional Convention, when the, the Articles of Confederation were adopted, the independent sovereign states, the, the colonies, were loosely tied together by the Articles of Confederation, which a certain school of thought believed was entirely inadequate. But the inadequacy of the Articles of Confederation is, in fact, one of the things that it, that's not a value-free observation that somebody makes from a sky balcony. Well, oh, look, those Articles of Confederation aren't working. They, they weren't working according to one of the um, political factions that was developing at the, at the time. So, um, at the Constitutional Convention, basically, uh, and some of these names are going to be anachronistic, but at the Constitutional Convention, you basically had the monarchist party, uh, which was essentially Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton was a strong uh, central government advocate, and he was a monarchist. Uh, then you had the Federalists, who believed in a strong central government. And ironically, uh, the word federalism has to do, actually uh, refers to the opposing position. The word federal comes from the, uh, the Latin word foidus, which means covenant. So, a federal system of government keeps a great deal of the political authority and power with the, uh, at the state level, uh, state and, and local level. But ironically, the nationalizers or the centralizers got the name Federalist, and uh, our first two presidents were Federalists. Uh, George Washington was a Federalist, and uh, John Adams was a, a strong Federalist. Then there were the, at the time of the Constitutional Convention debate, when we were in the process of ratifying the Constitution, uh, the Anti-Federalist Party developed. Probably the best-known anti-federalist would be uh, Patrick Henry. Uh, Patrick Henry famously said of the of the convention in Philadelphia that produced the produced the uh, Constitution, "I smell a rat." And yet we've got this interesting hybrid because uh, when the Constitution was put out to the states, it was in effect a federalist or a nationalist document. But in order to get ratification, there were compromises that were made. And uh, one of the compromises that was made was the uh, Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights basically is a set of writers that were attached to the Constitution because of pressure from the Anti-Federalists. In other words, 
the Federalist Constitution would not have been adopted had it just been put out there by itself. In order to get it adopted, they had to make a compromise with the Anti-Federalists. So, the Constitution as we now have it is a sort of a mashup. It's a compromise document between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist outlook. Now, that sets the stage for, you guessed it, court cases. From Marbury versus Madison, at least, down, down to the present, we have had certain assumptions baked into what might be called our unwritten constitution that basically tell us what the role of the Supreme Court is. Very few people know, for example, that in the constitution, Congress is given the authority to limit the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. So, all if we wanted the abortion controversy to go away, all Congress would have to do is take jurisdiction over any abortion case away from the Supreme Court. And if they did that, if that was signed and passed and signed by the president, then what would happen? Well, there would inevitably be court challenges and uh, the court challenge would bring the issue to the Supreme Court where they would decide whether this limitation on the Supreme Court was constitutional or not. Well, it would obviously be constitutional. It's right there in the Constitution. But the history of the Supreme Court uh, dictating the terms of its own power is a, um, that's been a practice that's been with us for a couple hundred years. So um, there are some breathtaking um, examples of malfeasance and creative interpretation and craziness down through the history of uh, our country. Many people think that we, we've been sort of saved by our Constitution. I think actually uh, what's actually saved our bacon more often than not has been the unwritten Constitution in the, uh, in, that resides among the people. In other words, it's not so much the Constitution that pr- protects us, it's what all the people believe the Constitution to be which protects us. Anyway, that's a, another topic for another time. Mm-hmm.